welcome to creating wealth through passive apartment investing podcast in this show we will discuss about best and worst experiences about passive and active apartment investing and i am your host ramakrishna let's begin the show today's our guest is krista testani from sharpline equity welcome krista thank you so much i'm happy to be here thanks for inviting me thank you a little bit about krista Krista Testani chief operating officer at Sharpline Equity after practicing law for several years her attention was drawn to real estate in 2009 Krista has been involved in acquisition and management of multifamily properties in multiple states valued over 30 million dollars Krista joined forces with her partner Christopher Jackson in 2016 and they formed Sharpline Equity real estate investments with that Krista would you like to add anything to your background Yeah, let's see. I started off a little bit differently than most people. I'm a lawyer by trade and I didn't actually love what I was doing, but you know, I was doing the do and uh moving forward in my career, but I just didn't love it and I spent a lot of energy and time being a lawyer and it's not it's not a comfortable feeling when you're spending so many hours at a job that's not really serving you or really fulfilling you. That's kind of how I felt. And I kind of backed into real estate. A lot of people I'm sure that you interview will tell you they've always had a passion for real estate and they couldn't wait to jump in and it's something that they thought about for a long time and i really came to it in a very different way i ended up abruptly leaving my job back in uh, 2007 very abruptly leaving and i just instead of just finding a new job in my career as an attorney i just decided to not go back to work right away and and figure things out and see if there was something else i could be better at than an attorney and it was really my husband at the time who had just retired from being a New York City firefighter and he was very interested in real estate and he wanted to start something up. We ended up starting up a, you know, buying single family homes on Long Island and uh buying distressed assets and and rehabbing them and then flipping them for sale. So that's actually how I first got into real estate. It was on his suggestion. It was his passion that I was riding at the moment when I decided to do that instead of going back into law. And then that eventually morphed into me forming a business and and buying apartment buildings. I realized that the single family model, although very successful for many people couldn't really figure out how to scale that and um i decided i wanted to figure out a, a way to scale my real estate business and i started learning about multifamily and that's how i got into you know multifamily acquisitions awesome and thanks for sharing that so how your experience in like law practice side helping you in multifamily area Yeah, well, I mean, obviously because I am a lawyer, there's a lot of uh legal <laughs> legal uh things that need to, to be taken care of and not that I do legal, I don't. I mean, buy apartment buildings in lots of different areas of the country and I'm not licensed to practice there, so it's not really the fact that I I do those things myself, but I have an understanding of a lot of legal situations and consequences and ramifications. So, you know, I bring that to the table because I have that expertise and just, you know, the discipline that I have with respect to paperwork and organization and um even writing, you know, uh, there's a part of my business where I spend a lot of time 
writing, you know, whether it be my marketing packages that I'm putting together for my investors, or whether it be, you know, writing, I do newsletters on all of my properties and, and I write newsletters for the, for the residents, you know, I do monthly newsletters or whether it be my reporting packages to my investors. Once they're in a deal, I do a lot of writing and um, my experience as an attorney helps me out in that aspect of my business as well. That's cool. Yeah. So your group investing in multiple states. What is the reason, Krista? I just, you know, there's a lot of different markets in this country. So you don't need to have the concept or the notion that you, the only place that you can invest is in your own backyard. Certainly you can if the markets are there that are attractive to you, but there's lots of uh, really good, healthy markets for multifamily investing. And so you just need to kind of figure out in the beginning, like what you're willing to do, what you're not willing to do when it comes to where you want to be, you know, if if traveling and getting on a plane is not something that you want to do often, then I would suggest that you look at markets that are in drivable distance. If travel doesn't at all impede your appetite, you know, then you can just start picking areas, you know, based on the economic factors that drive all multifamily. You know, one of the things that I did in the beginning, I asked myself about the travel and is that something that I was willing to do often, which I had no problem traveling. So that wasn't an impediment, but I, for warm weather, uh, you know, if I'm going to be traveling to visit my buildings, all different parts of the year, you know, I prefer to be in warmer weather. So I, I started, you know, that was one of the reasons I started looking for good multifamily markets down South. You know, my first deal I ended up in actually my second, my first deal was in Ohio. So that the weather piece didn't, <laughs> wasn't a factor there, but my second and third deals was Tennessee and Atlanta. And it, and it was because I decided to look in the Southeast markets. So, you know, you have to, there's lots of different places you can invest in this country and you just need to kind of tailor what your appetite is from the very beginning and then move forward after you've made those decisions. That's cool. Yeah. So what's your criteria in selecting the deals? My criteria now or when I started? Now also like, so what are the variables you would consider, you know, for acquiring deals? deals now, you know, certainly, you know, what, for people that are listening that, that are new, you have to think about what are your goals? Uh, you know, what is the business model that you're looking for with respect to multifamily? Are you looking for a higher class asset that's stable and you're looking to park your money and, you know, ride that particular market? And, you, you know, with respect to a choice like that, your returns are, are based on the organic growth in the market or are are you looking to do more of a forced value uh, type of deal where you're picking up a, an asset that's a more distressed and you're, you're forcing the appreciation rather than just riding market appreciation? You may be forcing the appreciation by uh, doing rehab. We started out, that was our business model. We started out strictly for the longest times, really only up until recently, we strictly were looking at C-class assets, workforce demographics. So when you're looking at your market, you know, we were looking for economic drivers that support the work, middle-income workforce laborers. So you're looking at, when you're researching the actual market, you're looking at A, de demand for rentals over home ownership. You're looking for the economic drivers such as industry and diversity 
of industry. You'd like to see job growth. You'd like to see population growth. You'd like to see, again, apartment demand, lower vacancy. You know, you actually have to look at the percentage of renters versus homeowners. You want to be in a market where at least, I mean, my benchmark is at least 35% of that market is renting and not owning their own homes. So those are some of the things that you're looking at. And like I said, we started out purchasing C-class assets. Our business model was to force appreciation through rehab, significant rehab usually. Our CapEx was usually pretty heavy on those deals. And then your uh, business model, you need to make a decision at a certain point whether you want to refi and hold that asset or you want to sell it. But that that is what we started out doing with respect to the, the type of deals that we were going after. Sure. And thanks for sharing that. And so what is your typical budget for renovations? Typical budget, it it really ranges. I mean, it depends on the size of the property. You know, lately, I think... Maybe per unit... It really, really depends because I'm going to say easily 10,000 per unit. We, we're we in a building right now. It's 174 unit and the budget is 900,000. These distressed assets, usually it's going to be at least 10 to 15,000 a unit, if not more. And they usually require both exterior and interior, you know, and that's, and you want it to be that way. You want to be doing exterior renovations because you want to be announcing not only to the community that lives there, but also also the surrounding community that new ownership has taken over. It's part of like the rebranding process that you want to engage in to attract new tenants to your building, to attract a better tenant to your building. So you want to be doing exterior renovations and interior renovations at the same time. And that's always how we approached it. We always looked to do both outside and inside. And like I said, you know, it really depends on the demands of the building. You know, if you're outside, exteriors require, you know, replacement of roofs, replacement of underground piping. We're finding that to be a big, big need now in some of these buildings. You know, one of the things you always ask when you're looking at an older building, and I'm going to say anything from 1960s, 70s, even 1980s, is what is the condition of the roof? What is the life expectancy? Because that's always a big price tag item. Now I'm, I'm going to recommend to people when you're looking at those aged buildings, you not only need to ask about the roofs, you need to ask about the piping underneath, the piping that runs from the building to the, you know, the outside water main system, because often those are galvanized piping and their life expectancy is at the end. At this point, if you're buying a building 1970s, that life expectancy is maybe between 30 and 50 years. So we, you know, two buildings already, we've had to carve out a budget to dig underground and replace all the galvanized part of the piping with PVC, which, you know, lasts, you know, a hundred years. So that's the material you're going to want to use at at this point. So those are big ticket items. If you don't have to do galvanized, if you don't have to replace galvanized piping underground or a roof, you know, you can substantially bring down your per unit CapEx budget. Yeah, those are some great points, Krista. Thanks for sharing that. So would you share some challenges you faced or you're facing in your multifamily journey? Actually, in the journey, let me talk about my journey, because there's a there's a challenge that I faced in the beginning that I think this would be helpful for people that are starting out in this business. Yeah. The challenge I had in the beginning was because here's the thing, right? No one person could be can be good at everything. 
You just can't, you know, you have your strengths, you have your weaknesses. And the challenge I had in the beginning was figuring out really my weaknesses or acknowledging them, not only figuring them out, but not being in denial about them. Because the important part of figuring out what am I good at and what am I not good at is you need to figure out the things that you're not good at and then figure out what resources am I going to tap to fill that gap? Am I going to go out and learn to do what I'm not good at and get better at it? Am I going to look to partner up with people that are really good at the things that I'm not good at? And that is what I ended up doing. I ended up partnering up with people uh, that had the strength where I was, you know, so that yin yang relationship. I knew I, when I was finally able to figure out and acknowledge what I was weak at, I looked for a partner that had a lot of strength in that area. And that helped me grow my business. So, uh, you know, I decided, no, I'm not going to go out and learn to do this stuff and get better at it. I'm going to double down on what I'm good at. And then I'm going to go out there and find, which is not easy to do, but I'm going to go out and find a partner whether it be a, a partner in the business or a JV partner for the deal, you know, you can go either way, but I'm going to find a partner that has the strengths that I lack. So that was very challenging in the beginning because you have to be very honest with yourself and you have to, you know, own up to those areas in your business that you just, you don't do it well, you know, and that's a very difficult, that's a very difficult thing to do in the beginning. So I would encourage people who are starting out to get really honest with yourself right of way and figure out, figure out that piece early on, because the earlier you figure out that piece, the quicker you can grow your business. Yeah, so true. And what's COVID impact on your properties and multifamily overall, Krista? Oh my gosh, <laughs> COVID-19, how is that impacted? Yeah, okay, let me count the ways. I got, this is a limited, <laughs> this is a limited podcast. So let me think about a succinct way to answer that because wow, that has been, that has, who would have thought, right, Rama? Who would have thought? Yeah. <laughs> a global pandemic. Nobody underwrites for that. I have to tell you, we are very conservative underwriters and I'm sure you interview a lot of people and they all talk about how conservative they are to protect their investors' money or even to protect their own if they're not syndicating their deals. But there's really no way to prepare for this. So sure, I mean, one of the biggest challenges we're having right now in our current deals, because you have challenges with your own deals and then, you know, then there's challenges in looking for new deals, right? There's, so there's two aspects going on in this business uh, when it comes to the COVID-19. With respect to the properties that we own right now, and again, up until recently, our our portfolio is a C property. So we have a worker, middle income worker demographic living there. Okay. And they are probably by far the most significantly impacted financially with the amount of job loss and you know what sectors the job loss uh, factor is hitting. Uh, the C tenant is probably the most affected. And so they're relying on the un unemployment benefits and they're relying on the, the stimulus packages to help get them through. And here's the thing, the eviction moratoriums that have been put in place has really, really hindered our ability because the tenant knows you know, whether they have the money or not. And I suspect a lot of the tenants have the money, but they're, you know, afraid to spend it. You know, maybe they're in a mode where they want to save every dime because of the uncertainty of the future. So whether they have it or not, you know, one of the things that they do know is they can't be displaced. They can't be evicted. That is really the only leverage an owner has when it comes to, you know, controlling 
what happens with their vacancy and their delinquency. <laughs> and that tool has been ripped from owners across the country. And so that has been significant because, you know, you, you have to encourage and work with tenants and, and try to convince them to make their rental payments a priority in a world where they know they can't be evicted. And that has been a challenge that, you know, we still haven't figured out. You know, we are doing our best. We are communicating with our tenant base all the time. We're offering payout plans. We're offering opportunities to, you know, waive uh, back balances, certain percentages of the back balances. Up until recently, you couldn't charge late fees. Uh, right now you can charge late fees. We offer, you know, the opportunity to waive the, the late fees. We're constantly in communication, encouraging our tenants who are struggling to get to work out payment plans with us. And we will continue to do that. And that will continue to be our strategy. But, you know, at the end of the day, tenants can sit back and do nothing if they choose to right now. And, um, you know, that's hard because owners are not getting any uh, significant relief when it comes to paying their real estate taxes, <laughs> their insurance premiums. You know, the only thing that they've been offered to do, and we won't do it, they've been offered to, you know, if they can prove their hardship with certain types of debt, forbearance has, has been offered. But we are looking to avoid going into forbearance at all costs, because I think that just invites a whole host of other negative consequences when it comes to credit, when it comes to agency debt willing to loan to you again. I don't know if people realize this, but if you choose that forbearance option with like, let's say you have Fannie or Freddie, if you choose that forbearance option, it hinders your ability to get another Fannie or Freddie loan again. They don't tell you that when they're saying, oh yes, you know, we have a forbearance option that you can exercise. But that in fact, we've had many conversations with brokers and uh, direct underwriters for Fannie and Freddie, and that is absolutely a real consequence. So you're hurting your ability to do deals in the future where you want to get agency debt. So we have not choose, chosen that option and we will look to avoid that at all costs. So um, yeah, that's that. I'm going to say that's probably the biggest challenge right now. Good. Yeah. And thanks for sharing your view. And would you share any of your best and worst apartment experiences so far? Yeah, I have one. And interestingly, Rama, it, it is a um, it is an incident that really it, it qualifies as one of the, the best and worst experiences at the same time. I can answer that question, th those two questions with one particular situation that what I had. And it was a um, 48 units. It was my second deal in, in my multifamily career. I, I syndicate my deals. So I have investors and we had a 48 unit in Atlanta that we were just about to sell. We didn't, we were about to go into contract. So we had been negotiating the contract, but they weren't signed yet. In fact, it was, uh, I'll never forget. It was a Saturday morning and I was planning on signing the contract on Monday and emailing it out. But that Saturday I get a phone call and there was a horrific large fire. This was a two-story building that I had. And there was a large fire that started on one of the main, uh, one of the bottom floors, first floor. And it took out, you know, I'm going to say 11 units. One was uh, burnt down, one the, the where the, the fire started, it uh, burnt down that unit completely. And then it damaged 11 other units. It was a fire that happened overnight. It was on the news, you know, two o'clock in the morning, uh, people were jumping out of their second floor windows. Thank God, I will say out, you know, up front, nobody was seriously injured. That is the miracle of all miracles that happened. But that was bad. I was still new. This was, uh, I was uh, not a seasoned 
investor at this point. This was only my second building. I'd only been doing this a couple of years, you know, to, to get that phone call. Number one, okay, you know, again, thankfully everybody was was okay, but now I'm dealing with a massive project, okay? Again, 11 units were significantly damaged. Sale, that's not going to happen, right? I immediately cancel any future negotiations regarding the contract because that's not going to happen. Half my building, you know, went up in flames. That was a pretty horrible moment. You know, it was, and it was scary. And it was uh, a long time uh, coming out of it because lots of work had to be done at this point. Uh, Tenants got displaced for months. They got displaced. We were working with tenants, you know, different agencies came in to help out and and provide uh, resources for them to live in, in, in different apartments until we can get their units up and running. So it was massive project. And then of course, just dealing with, you know, the, the rehab itself and, and what was involved in that. That was a very trying time. And, you know, I, I could put it up there as one of my worst moments. And it ended up being one of my best because number one, you know, it's in, it's in the trying times that your character comes through, not in the best of times. It's in the worst of times. You really find out what you're made of. And, uh, you know, me and my partner at the time, we really had to just, you know, get busy, roll up our sleeves, get busy and do what we needed to do to, to rehab this property and, and get these tenants back into their homes. And we did it to the best of our ability. And it took time. I mean, it still took four months to, to get at the units up and ready because it was such a massive fire, but we, we did it and we did it well. And here's the other thing that happened. We are now, you know, so it's, it's so interesting because, you know, you never want to prejudge a moment. That's a, a recent piece of advice that I received that's really, I look back and it's so impactful. Don't pre- Prejudge the moment, you know, because right away you can look and say, oh my God, this is like the worst thing ever that could have happened. But it turned out to be an amazing benefit because now the rehab was so significant and so many units were affected and our outside of our building had to be repainted. So there was a lot of exterior work that needed to be redone and it actually refreshed at the outside of our building. When I was, when we were ready to sell that building again after everything had been completed, that building was worth a lot more money. 11 units had been redone. So they were rehabbed in effect. They they were rehabbed and there was no intention earlier on to rehab those units. The exterior was refreshed based on the smoke damage that happened on the outside. We had to refresh And this was all covered by insurance proceeds. So I was able to do this significant rehabilitation project that was prefaced by the fire. It didn't have any out-of-cost, you know, any out-of-pocket costs. So it didn't hurt any uh, financials with respect to our reserves. And I sold that building for $400,000 more than the original sale price that I had been negotiating early on. So it was such a, an amazing moment because it was one of the best and wor- you know, worst and best things that had ever occurred in my uh, career so far. That's cool. Yep. So one advice that impacted you, Krista? You know, it it really, it ties into that. So, and it's actually advice that I heard very recently. And the advice came from my pastor and he said, don't prejudge a moment because often when you prejudge the moment, it'll affect you both psych, you know, it'll affect your psyche and it may affect your decision. Don't prejudge the moment as, oh, this is a really bad thing. 
or, oh, this is a really good thing. I mean, it works both ways. Don't prejudge the moment. Basically accept what's happening as your reality and just make your decisions with the information that you have at the moment that you have it. Make the best possible decisions moving forward. But don't prejudge because if you prejudge a moment is, wow, this is the worst thing that could have happened. That really can affect your whole attitude and approach on how to, let's say, resolve the situation that you're dealing with. If you're prejudging it as, as a really negative, negative thing that's going on, it can affect you in the wrong way. If you don't prejudge it at all and just move through and, and do your problem solving and resolve the issue at hand and move forward with, I'm going to say, just move forward in every, every situation with hope and optimism. That's really how you have to approach every decision. You may look back at a situation that you thought was a very negative situation, but it really turned out to be very, very positive in, in various ways, you know, and only time and hindsight, you know, will allow you to appreciate that. And so you have to let time pass. And so I would say that is probably it's recent advice that was given to me, but it's been very impactful. And as I look back at moments in my career, I could see things that, you know, I originally thought were negative and the fire is a prime example that turned out to be a very positive event in my business. So I'm going to say don't, you know, that's been very impactful advice. Do not prejudge the moment. So, right. So how are you giving back to community, Krista? I do it in a couple of ways. I mean, on a personal level, I serve my church. I am a treasurer on the board of my church. So, you know, personally, that's something that I do. And um, it really gives me a lot of joy in with respect to our business you know, my partner and I created a Facebook community, which is an open community that we accept people who are just interested in learning about multifamily investing, or they may be seasoned investors, all different types of people enter this community. It's called Multifamily Apartment Investing Unveiled. And the purpose of the group was just to create a forum. And there's lots of groups out there that are doing it. And we just wanted to hop on the bandwagon because we thought it was a great idea. It's just to create a community where people can provide feedback, lessons learned, things that they're going through, resources. They can provide resources for people that are looking for them. And it's just an opportunity to, you know, to have a platform where like-minded individuals can meet in a virtual way and share information, share stories so that their growth in their business, you know, they can grow their business learning through experiences of other people that are sharing their experiences online. Good, good. So how can listeners can connect with you? You know, a couple of different ways, certainly through that multifamily investment unveiled group. Our website is uh, com. You can check out our website. We also have a phone number there. You can reach us or you can, you know, reach out directly to me at Krista, K-R-I-S-T-A at sharplineequity.com. Cool. And thank you, Krista. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm sorry, I really appreciate the invite and uh, I was happy, happy to come on today and talk to you. Yeah, thank you. If you like the show, please subscribe, share, rate, and review. And if you want to connect with me, please send me a message, info at ushacapital.com. Thank you for listening. Creating Wealth Through Passive Apartment Investing Podcast. I hope you learned something from the show. See you in the next episode. Thank you. Any information provided from these shows are educational purpose only. As always, please consult with your own CPA, legal and financial advisor before investing.